Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week's edition is about India, which recently celebrated the 75th anniversary of independence. And many believe that over the next 75 years, India is poised to emerge as a 21st century superpower. My guest this week is Ramachandra Guha, who's often hailed as the most distinguished historian of modern India. He's also a noted critic of the government of Prime Minister Narendra Modi. So, will India soar or struggle in the coming years? The 75th anniversary of Indian independence from the British Empire was marked with celebrations all over the country. In Delhi, Prime Minister Modi inspected the troops. In his Independence Day speech, Modi touched on many themes, including his hopes for a digital revolution in India. Modi's backers often focus on the economic progress that the country has made under his leadership. His critics argue that democratic freedoms are being eroded and that India has become a much less tolerant place. Ram Guha's book, India After Gandhi, is regarded as the standard modern history of the country. So I began our conversation by asking him to place the Modi era in historical perspective. People who see Modi as a great redeemer of Hindu culture and Hindu nationhood, the others who see him as a fascist, and the truth is somewhere in between. I think, of course, it's the personality cult around him, institutions are declining. I'd say the country is going through probably the third major crisis since independence. The first crisis being immediately after partition when we had to resettle refugees, uh, forge a constitution, integrate the princely states, deal with famine. That's the first crisis, which we overcome partly because of the sagacious leadership of people like Nehru, Patel, Ambedkar, the founders of our republic. The second crisis was the emergency when Indira Gandhi uh, sort of anticipated Modi by creating a personality cult around herself, by capturing her party, by having a pliant media, a pliant judiciary, and of course, abrogating civil rights and, and elections. And that ended too. So I'd say this, in my view, I'm not apocalyptic about India, but I'm worried about India. I think we are going through a major democratic and social crisis, partly because, and this is the last thing I'd say with regard to this question, one of the major differences between Indira Gandhi and Modi is that Modi is head of a majoritarian party. Indira Gandhi believed that India belonged to everyone regardless of religion or language. So I'd say I'm worried about my country. So there's a lot to unpick there. Let's start with the majoritarianism. 
as you say, I mean, the BJP, the party he leads, seems to be essentially a Hindu party. Yes. Really, there are no Muslim MPs in, in the BJP. How precarious do you think the situation is of the hundreds of millions of Muslims in India? I mean, it's unlikely that, again, you know, people talk in apocalyptic terms. They talk about genocide, ethnic cleansing. That's not unlikely to happen. But low-level persecution and harassment and stigmatization on a daily level. So a Muslim couple wants to rent a flat, they can't get it. If they apply for jobs, it's likely that other people will be preferred above them. Name-calling, dog whistles by leaders of the ruling party, invisibility in the press, declining representation, not just in parliament, which you point out, but also in the professional classes. So when I was younger, there were many more Muslims who were professors, lawyers, judges, uh, leading doctors, and also educated Muslims who have a chance often want to go abroad because, you know, they see what's happening to their fellow brethren. There is a steady demonization and stigmatization of Muslims, which is incremental. It's not dramatic. That has to be, we have to pull back from that. Of course, you know, one could argue, again, as I'm speaking as a historian, as a citizen, I worry about what's happening to my Muslim citizens. But as a historian, I recognize we live in a neighborhood which is dominated by majoritarian states. Pakistan and Bangladesh are Islamic majoritarian states. Myanmar, Sri Lanka and Bhutan are Buddhist majoritarian states. And maybe India under Modi wants to approximate this South Asian norm. And in fact, they more or less say that, don't they? When, when they justified yes. Yes. Uh, not extending refugee status to Muslims, they said, well, they're Muslim states they can go to. Exactly. In this, I mean, you've, you've written biographies of Gandhi as well. How much is Modi repudiating actually the legacy of Gandhi or, or trying to create a different sort of India? And are his followers explicit about that? So there's a slight difference between Modi and his followers. Modi is a very intelligent and crafty man, and he knows that the world is looking at India. So the followers detest Gandhi because he wanted Muslims to have equal rights, because he preached nonviolence, which they see as effeminate and you know not macho enough. Modi will extol those aspects of Gandhi that are sort of non-controversial, like his emphasis on cleanliness, his preference for homespun cloth, his environmental sensibility. But on the key question of equal rights for Muslims, Modi will never, a cause for which Gandhi lived and died. Gandhi lived and died for Hindu-Muslim harmony. I mean, he was clear after partition that India would not be a Hindu-Pakistan. And that's what he gave his life for. That's what his greatest fast in his last months of his life were all about. So Modi takes the safe, non-controversial Gandhi, which won't offend the West. and But his followers and the bulk of his party actually suspect Gandhi, dislike Gandhi. A significant section of the BJP admires Gandhi's murderer, Kodse. I mean, essentially, the ruling party in India broadly repudiates the greatest Indian of the 20th century. And somebody said to me that the way that Modi deals with this is that he doesn't, as they put it, he doesn't say the worst stuff himself. He just yes. poses for selfies with the people who do. In other words, he's yeah. sort of associated with the people. Yes. He doesn't repudiate exactly, them. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. You've written, I think, that India is now only a 30% democracy. I know many Modi supporters would be outraged by that. They'd say, look, our man is freely elected. People like you can speak out. We have independent courts. So how do you justify that statement? So, you know, there's a great personality cult around Modi. And I've been thinking a lot about personality cults in democracies or partial democracies, such as Brazil or, or Turkey or Hungary or, or America or my country. And how does a personality cult undermine eviscerate democracy? First, by the leader capturing the party. So there's no dissent in the party at all. Then by capturing the media. 
Today there is a news report where this very close to Modi Adani wants to take over India's last independent TV house, NDTV. So then you capture the media. Then also the court supply. I mean, a Supreme Court judge, no less, has called Modi a visionary global leader. And the courts have been extremely timid in giving any judgments <coughs> against the state. Then the civil service, then the tax authorities. So if you look at how state governments are brought down in state, many states of India, it's by the central government's tax authorities harassing opposition legislators. So these institutions, different kinds of institutions, have been captured, tamed, suborned to serve this personality cult of Modi and the growing hegemony of the BJP. So democratic institutions are in peril. I mean, Boris Johnson may have wanted to do Modi, uh, a Modi or a Trump, but he could not capture the press. He could not capture his party. He could not. He had to face daily questions in parliament, which Modi doesn't. So I think our democratic institutions are seriously imperiled today. And how do you see it developing? I mean, is this a, a moving story? In other words, yeah. things have got worse and are likely to get even worse. One can never tell about India because every prediction about India has failed. In the early days of the Indian Republic, we were told we would face mass scarcity, we'd become a military dictatorship, we'd balkanize. Then the 1990s and 2000s, after our economic surge and the success of our software and pharmaceutical industry, we were told India is going to become a superpower. I hesitate to make any predictions about my country, except to say that in my view as a historian, this is the third major crisis of the Republic. It could go anywhere. They are countervailing forces. For example, the region I live in, South India, only one of the five major states in South India is under the BJP, and the BJP may lose there in the next elections. There are pockets of freedom. There is dissent. There's grave unemployment uh, and inflation, which could give a handle to the opposition. And our democratic traditions are somewhat more robust than, shall we say, Turkey or Hungary or uh, Brazil. So they could rediscover themselves. So it's an open question where we are going. Again, you know, the Modi people would say, well, you know, the very fact that you can speak like this to me, that you live in India, tells you that India is a democracy. There is still dissent and so on. No, on the other no. hand, you're under pressure, aren't you? I mean, you, you were briefly arrested, weren't you? No, no, I was also denied. I've been denied jobs by director. You know, I was appointed to a chair in Ahmedabad. And a leading minister, very close to Modi, actually called the Chancellor of the University and said, withdraw that appointment, which is what happened. But I am somewhat protected because I have an international reputation. You know, journalists writing in Indian languages who can't come and speak to the FT are harassed, persecuted, arrested. There are many journalists in jail simply because they're speaking the truth. I mean, on the Press Freedom Index, we have dropped from 140, which is low enough, to 150. And as I said, our major media houses are systematically crumbling under the onslaught of state pressure. I'll give you one last example. When the COVID pandemic happened, one of the leading Hindi newspapers uh, there was a huge, the second wave exacted a huge toll in northern India. And there were the Hindi newspaper called Dainik Bhaskar put photographs of the bodies that were uncremated on the banks of the Ganga. The next day, their offices were raided and they've been silent ever since in the criticism of the government. So I think the Modi government can point to me or one or two other people writing in English and say, look at what they're saying. But look at everyday life on the ground for not just regular reporters and journalists, but for websites, media houses, and the harassment they face. So I think uh, you know we are not as bad as we were during the emergency, when all democratic rights were abrogated. I was a college student then, so I remember it vividly. But on that side, when it comes to freedoms, we are slightly better off than we were in the emergency. But when it comes to the persecution of our largest minority, we are much worse off.
Modi's defenders, again, to, to put their case to you, uh, you know, I remember speaking to Indian government ministers and putting some of the criticisms that you've made to them, and they say, well, you guys in the West or even Indian liberals just need to kind of get over themselves because Modi is enormously popular and he's popular for a reason, that he's delivered for ordinary Indian people both pride, but also they point to certain achievements such as the transformation of the welfare system yeah. so that people get money directly, yeah. it's not stolen and that kind of thing. So can he legitimately say, well, for you know, Indians who live, uh, who may not be literate, who are poor, etc., these concerns are relatively abstract, whereas he's delivered on real benefits. So he has, he has delivered SOPs. So it is true, partly because of India's extremely robust digital ecosystem, which was actually set in motion by the Congress regime under Malmohan Singh and Nanda Nelekani, who worked with that regime, uh, and you know, had, had this unique identity program, biometric program. So Modi's government has certainly improved welfare delivery, but they've done nothing about the difficult things. Education, health, employment, you know, which is what really leads to sustained economic growth. I'll give you one last example. One of the state governments that has done excellent work in education and health is the government of Delhi run by the Ahmadmi Party. And they've done excellent work with public health and public education. The New York Times did a story on their work. And the next day, their education minister was aided by the Central Bureau of Investigation. So this kind of extraordinary concentration of power, this envy and jealousy about other parties, this harassment of anyone else who comes up, these are classic manifestations of a personality cult. I mean, even within his party, it's all Modi. This was not true of the BJP and the Vajpayee. The BJP actually opposed cults of personality because they had experienced Indira Gandhi's cult of personality. But the cult of Modi, there's never been a cult like that in a democratic country as large as India. And as we know from history, personality cults end badly for the country, that not just them. So he may be popular, but, you know, Mao was popular, Trump is popular, Orban is popular. And look what that excessive popularity has done to the democratic institutions and indeed the economic prospects of their countries. So do you think he's there for the long term? I mean, I've heard some people say, well, he's now, you know, how old is he now? Is early he, 70s. He's in his 71. early 70s. Yeah. You know, it's actually similar sort of age to Xi Jinping, similar sort of age to yeah. Putin. Those two are clearly want to rule forever. Do you think that is Modi's ambition? I, he would want a third term. So I think the person he's deeply envious of is, is of Jawaharlal Nehru, who won, and who won three elections, who had a great international reputation. He'd want to win a third term at the moment, it looks likely that he'll win a third term. But what the long-term consequences are, are not clear. For example, the Congress Party was a decentralized democratic party. Indira Gandhi made it into a cult about herself and destroyed the party in the long run. Trump may do the same thing to the Republicans. And Modi may do the same thing to the BJP. So his personal success will not just be at the cost of our democratic institutions, our pluralistic society, but possibly the future of his own party itself. And also, it, it does affect the global atmosphere. I mean, India is now, along with China, one of the two most populous countries in the world, yeah. 1.4 billion people. But how far do you think also, you've you mentioned uh, a few times, you know, Boris Johnson, Trump, Orban, etc. What's happening is India, in India, do you feel that it's part of a kind of global trend? Yeah. It is, and you've written about it. And it's certainly part of a global trend. I think maybe Britain and Germany are two of the few countries that have resisted it in their politics and in their culture. I'd also say one thing uh, to qualify the criticisms I made of Modi. That is, in most states of India, there are personality cults. So the chief minister of West Bengal, Mamta Banerjee, who opposes Modi politically, also has destroyed the press and democratic institutions in her state. 
the chief minister of Andhra Pradesh, Jagan Reddy, of Tamil Nadu, of Kerala, of Uttar Pradesh, our largest state, which is run by a man called Aditya Raj. So this centralization of power, this glorification of the leader, this desperate desire to want personal praise all the time from the press, from the officials, from the judges, is actually ubiquitous in India. And that is perhaps a cultural failing um, in our society. But as you say, there are plenty of people who are willing to praise him. And uh, some of it may be out of fear or hope for preferment. But my sense is, I mean, is that many people in the Indian middle class do buy into Modi's narrative about the resurgent India, the India that will be one of the superpowers of the 21st century. It's well on its way. There is a subliminal religious element. Hindus are at last recovering their cultural pride and their civilizational greatness. They were suppressed by the Mughals, then by the British. And now Modi is going to make Hindus rule the world. But this is utter fantasy, Gideon. If you look at our position on every possible global index, it's declining. If you look at the state of our health system, our education system, if you look look at the attacks on our best public universities, we're not doing very well. And if Indians look at what is happening around us, I think they should be worried. Okay, last pushback then. I guess a lot of people point to the economy and say, yes, there's high unemployment and so on. But India is now, you know, in the top five economies in the world, just by sheer numbers. Yes. And the fact that you have quite a dynamic private sector, some real global companies, India is going to be a big player because it's a huge economy. It's true that there are some successes, uh, without question. But there's also uh, increasing disparity. There's crony capitalism. I mean, if you look at Two industrialists, Ambani and Adani, and their growth under Modi. I mean, it's we are approaching the Russian oligarch system. Extraordinary concentration of wealth in a few companies. It's not really a level playing field, even for Indian industry. There's protectionism, which, uh, to my mind, uh, we should be worried about. You know, there's an inward shut off trade. We didn't join a major trade partnership involving East, East and Southeast Asian nations, which I think would have been in our best interest. There's grave unemployment. Those who are want to join the workforce are not skilled because our education system is not shambles. So if you just look at one number, we are large, we are growing, you say 5%, 6% growth. It actually hides a multitude of sins. Last question then. India's international position. Obviously, we're in an increasingly polarized situation between the US and China. We now have the Ukraine war where certainly in the West, people were upset that uh, India has been sort of pretty silent on, on, on the subject. How do you uh, see Modi negotiating all this? So I think Modi has been very lucky because he's come to power at a time of growing estrangement between the United States and China. So whatever the human rights abuses in India, the Biden administration is not going to criticize. So I think that's partly his political good fortune. On Ukraine, you see, Gideon, we were born out of an anti-colonial struggle. That's why we supported, we were the first and the most consistent supporters of the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. We told the Americans not to invade Vietnam, you know. So we come from that kind of tradition. So it would be consistent with that tradition for us to gently, quietly chastise Russians over their invasion of Ukraine, which is an act of imperialist aggression. And also, I think it would bolster our position in the West. I think it would make us much more credible player if you want, for example, a permanent seat in the UN Security Council if we take those kinds of stands. But sadly, we haven't. I think some of them will say, well, actually, you know, it is all the former imperial countries, the Britons, the Frances, that are opposed to Russia. Russia was never, in their view, a colonial power because it only, you know, didn't colonize. I mean, it colonized its immediate neighborhood. But But it it, it, it invaded Afghanistan. I think my view, I mean, would be the invasion of 
American invasion of Vietnam was morally wrong. Hmm. American invasion of Iraq was not morally wrong, but politically disastrous. And to be consistent, a country like India, uh, you know, which got its freedom under people like Gandhi and Nehru, should all oppose imperialism everywhere. You know, Indira Gandhi in the 1960s criticized the American invasion of Vietnam and she took a great risk because the Americans were supplying us wheat to tide over food scarcities. You know, that's a position of principle. And we can do it, you know, we don't have to do it polemically. We can do it gently. But we can tell the Russians we don't really approve. I think that would be not just to our benefit, it would be to the benefit of the whole world. And last thing then, so... Obviously, what Modi is doing is partly manoeuvring. But what do you think he and the people around him, the key BJP thinkers, actually think of Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Well, there's one theory that uh, because we can avail of Russian oil, uh, that will help uh, the Modi government tackle inflation, which is their greatest political worry. Because elections in India are generally lost and won on inflation rates, not necessarily employment, but inflation, because that hurts the ordinary person and their daily lifestyle. So I think that's part of the pragmatic calculation, that we may need Russian oil to keep, because we are a massive importer of, of oil, you know, and of energy generally. So I don't know what their calculations are. It could be Modi's also inexperience in international affairs. I mean, compared to, say, Manmohan Singh, who had served overseas and understood the complexities of global geopolitics much better than Modi did. He also understood economics much better than Modi did, for example. But uh, I can't say what the compulsions are, but I'm disappointed that we have tacitly, our government, my government, has tacitly taken the side of the Russians. That was Professor Ramachandra Guha ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Thanks for listening, and please join me again next week. 